If you have your copy of God's Word, I want to encourage you to turn with us to Genesis chapter 14. Genesis 14, as we continue to make our way through this book of the beginnings and walking through the story of God's people and the blessing upon Abram and So again, Genesis 14, if you have your copy of God's Word, turn there with me this morning. In 1996, a nine-year-old Texas girl by the name of Amber Hagerman went out for a simple bike ride with her five-year-old brother, and she was abducted. Immediately, her family and law enforcement began looking for Amber, but unfortunately, Amber never made it back home. You may be wondering, well, I don't know if I remember that story. You may not, but you likely have been impacted by it because you now know that when your phone beeps or that goes across the screen, it's known as an amber alert. It's been since that time that about 1,100 children in the United States who have been abducted have been rescued and brought back with their families. Because in other words, right, when you love someone and they go missing, you go searching for them. But it's also a reminder that the world, the country in which we live, that we have to have Amber Alerts, that there's a sinful world, a world that's stricken by sin and and captive to it. It's the heartache of knowing that we live in a world where little girls like Amber don't come back. We have to wrestle and hurt with that. This morning we come to a story in Genesis chapter 14, and as we make our way there, I want to remind you that Genesis 13 was this moment when Abram and Lot were there, and there was a quarreling in their family, and so they decided finally, hey, Lot, you choose the way you want to go, and I'll go the other. And Lot looks, and he he looks toward ultimately the east and Sodom and Gomorrah, and he heads that direction. And the text just tells us there in verse 13 of Genesis 13, it says, The men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. And so then, but Abram is reminded of the blessing and the promise and and all those things as the chapter closed. And then chapter 14 picks up and we're going to begin to find out that Lot, who has made his way to Sodom, ultimately finds himself in the crosshairs of this ongoing battle of these different kings. And he's going to be captured and the need for Abram to come and look for him. While the Bible may not have an Amber alert, it does have an Abraham alert. It's Kind of like maybe some of you, you know that bat signal, right? The moment of distress goes up in Gotham and, man, Batman is there. This is the moment of a distress signal that's sent out of saying to Lot, right, hey, Abram, I need rescue, I need help. And I think it reminds us that what stands behind this promise, this alert to Abram, is this promise of God's blessing. That I'm going to bless you, I'm going to make a great nation of you, and I'm going to give you this land. And it's maybe today as you think about the passage of how do I capture it in my heart and mind with a simple sentence. I think the words of Psalm 124 fit Genesis 14 well, and it's just this. If the Lord had not been on our side. I want to encourage you, maybe write down Psalm 124, and this afternoon just go and read it. Maybe just as a way of just continuing to to marinate on this text and, and let it ruminate in your heart and mind. But that statement, if the Lord had not been on our side, Psalm 124. But because the Lord is on our side, we can have hope that Christ will rescue us, beloved, and he will bring the victory. But the very fact that you and I even have to talk this morning about rescuing also implies that we must be captive. You see, the reality is our captor is much harsher than any Babylonian or Turkish forces that are in our text today. For we are locked in sin's closet. 
with no way of escaping ourselves. Maybe this text this morning may stir some questions for you. Like, well, why do I need rescuing? And who's even able to rescue me? And how do they do it? And maybe if that's true, then maybe you might wonder, well, what should my response be to my rescuer? And so those are some questions that we hope to wrestle with today as we come to this truth. If the Lord had not been on our side, Genesis chapter 14. So let's wrestle with that first truth. The first question, why do I need rescuing? And we need rescuing because our hearts are sinful and we live in a sinful world. That's why you and I need rescuing. Because we're sinners and we live in a sinful world. So pick up the wood, Genesis chapter 14. This is quite the historical account, right? This is, this is telling us of a lot of things that are unfolding, right, many thousands of years ago. There's some hard names in here. I'm going to do my best to work my way through it. But I want you just to hear the context of it, just kind of the setting unfolding. And then it's going to come to this climactic point in verse 12. So hear this morning again the word of the Lord, beginning in verse 1 of Genesis 14. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariok, king of Elisar, Chedorlaomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goiam, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Birsha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Admah, Shemeber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. And all these joined forces in the valley of Siddim, that is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Chedorlaomer, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim in Ashtaroth, Carnaim, the Zuzim in Ham, the Emim in Shevev, Kariathium, and the Horites in their hill country of Seir, as far as El Paran on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned their back, or then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazazan Tamar. Then the kings of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Admah, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out and they joined forces, or they joined battle in the valley of Siddim with Chedorlaomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goiam, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Ariok, king of Elisar, four kings against five. It's like reading a Dr. Seuss book, isn't it, right? Come on, man. Now the valley of Siddim was full of bitum pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into it to them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way, and then this moment happens. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions, and went their way. So again, I want to draw your attention to just kind of the context of the setting of what's happening here, right? So again, we have this this reality. It says that for 12 years, they're serving Chedorlaomer, right? And so Chedorlaomer, we also have um, the king of of Shinar, which is the word for Babylon, all right? And there's two other kings that are part of them. So four kings. These kings also appear to be what's modern-day Turkey. So I'm going to try and see if I can show it to you. Let's see here. Yeah, so if you look at this map, right, kind of what's happening is here. Bit of zoom. Come on, baby. Of course not. All right. There we go. All right, so what, what we have is when you think about the kings to the east, right, so you have modern-day Iraq. And so these kings are coming out of this area, out of, out of, of, of Babylon, right, and so there are also some kings that are floating from modern-day Turkey. 
And they're coming this way, making their way toward Jerusalem, right? But below that is what you notice here, modern-day Hebron. That is where Sodom and Gomorrah is. I hope that's, I don't know if that's clear it is on the screen there. But anyway, so you think about modern-day Hebron. Again, it's just south of Jerusalem. And these kings are coming down. There's four kings against five. If you also heard back in verse 5 here, yeah, let's look back in verse 5. Look what it says. In the 14th year, uh, Shedeleomer and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim. All right, so if you hear about the Rephaim, you might go look in passages like Deuteronomy chapter 2 and then Deuteronomy chapter 3. I think it's Deuteronomy 3 and 11. There's this king named Og who is a descendant of the Rephaim. And it says that his bed is nine cubits in length and six cubits or four cubits in width. That's about a bed that's about 13 by 6. Now, I, maybe it's trying to say this is how great this king's kingdom is, and, and this is the way in which he kind of pronounces that. But I think it's also a reminder that these also are descendants of those who were known as giants. Why do I bring all that up? Because these that have come against Lot and the, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah, these are like great warrior men. Right, I mean, we know that the king of Babylon, right, or the Babylonians that are coming out there, chapter, back in chapter 11, we heard that Nimrod was there, and he was this mighty warrior on the earth. I mean, these guys are epic in battle. And I think that's important because, again, we read this, and it's like a Dr. Seuss list of, like, that is quite the fox and boxer, right? I mean, like, it's that kind of moment of wrestling. But, again, 12 years of, of being oppressed and under the thumb of these other rulers. And notice what the text says. In verse 5, in the 14th year, right, they came back down. Why? Because they've rebelled against them, right? So 12 years, verse 4 says, they, in the 13th year, they decide, hey, you know what? Enough's enough, and they rebel against them. And so what happens is these other four kings come down, right, and they literally crush them. And not only do they crush them, they begin to capture some of them and take them off as captives. And we know that one of those people that was captive was who? Lot. And that's kind of this moment that begins to build the story, right? I mean, because Lot appears hopeless. I mean, he's followed his own heart and desires, and he sought out a land that the Bible has told us is wicked. It's, they're great sinners. And this land he's experiencing the result of sinful people and being in a sinful world. Lot has to wonder, maybe something you've wondered. Is there anybody really on my side? Is there anybody sees me? Anybody cares? Anybody going to come and rescue me? I think we can all identify with Lot in some ways, can't we? I mean, we've all followed our sinful hearts. We've all done exactly what Lot did, exactly what Adam and Eve did back in the garden. We've seen what our hearts and our eyes desire, and we've went and taken that. And what was the result? We found ourselves, like Lot, captured by sin and defeated. We found ourselves ringing true what Todd preached last week in Ephesians 2 and 12, that we were without God and without hope in the world. And as much as we might try or think we can rescue ourselves, we, like Lot, are locked in sin's closet. Speaking of being locked in, that reminds me. Just a, I don't know if this is last week or the week before, but I was out in the room and uh, in our house, and I hear Pavey start screaming and crying, and I'm like, man, what is going on? And so I start making my way, and it just gets louder, right? And so I start yelling, "Baby, I'm coming! I'm coming!" And it starts to, she starts to quiet down. And so I finally come myself to the door and I'm opening it by the time she's finally getting the handle open and the room's completely dark. And there are tears running down her face and she's struggling to even communicate. And I said, what happened? And she said, one of the boys, they locked me in here. And so we're wiping away tears and then we're going to look for her captor. 
And we found that big tough guy in the other room hiding under the covers. I'll leave that young man nameless, but he knows who he is. I think the reminder is, right, sin's closet looks different to all of us, but we all have found ourselves, like Pavey, locked in the dark and unable to escape. For you, it may have been that relationship that maybe your parents or others in the church warned you, don't pursue that. For others, sin's closet was when you went after the riches and building your own kingdom and you totally neglected your marriage and your family. For others, sin's closet was a prideful thought that you could look at pornography or those images and not get hooked. For others, maybe it was a drink or those pain pills and you would think that you could overcome that addiction or it would never happen to you. And yet my assumption is in a room this size, there are others who are battling the silent assassin. And that is that you think that you're actually a morally good person. And because of that, you don't feel like you're even in the darkness. And so you see no real need of Jesus because you think you're pretty good as you are. That in itself testifies the spiritual blindness that we're in, beloved. Today I share that because I want us to all know that there is hope. For us who are in the darkness, that there is a God who sees and loves us, even though we have no way to free ourselves, we, like Lot, need rescuing. Would you be willing to confess that? Like, God, I need rescuing today. God, you are the Father, the Deliverer who comes to rescue me. So again, we try to make our point that we actually all need rescuing just like Lot. And that brings us to our second truth. Asking the follow-up question, well, if I do indeed need, need rescue, and then who's able to rescue me, and how do they do it? And I think this truth comes. God rescues us against all odds, not by sending someone else, but by sending someone like he does Abram, sending himself. Because he would, verses 13 to 16 of Genesis 14. Then one who had escaped. So somebody escapes from this fray, right? They get loose and, and somehow they run back. And they told Abram the Hebrew, which is the first mention of the word Hebrew in our English Bible, right? Or in, in the Bible as a whole. Who was living by the oaks of Mamre the Amorite, brother of Eschol and of Aner. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, right? So now we already know that, again, Abram has no child of his own, but obviously God is blessing Abram. His house is growing because he has 318 trained men. And they went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. Now consider this for a moment, right? Five kings just tried to battle these four kings, and they couldn't do it. And now you're going to tell me one guy with 318 other men are going to go and overcome these four kings who have ruled and just annihilated everybody else in their path. And listen, it, it says, look, he pursues them as far as Dan. He's literally not only overcoming them and like getting Lot and saying, let's get out of here quick. He literally is driving these people out of the promised land. The Bible is saying to us, Look at how great Abram is. Instead, it says, behold the greatness of your God. There's a God that's at work in this moment. Doing what Abram could never do on his own. 
One man and 300 men don't defeat four kings and their armies by themselves unless that one man and his men are coming not in their own power or strength, but in the power of God. I might wonder this morning, does Abram's story sound a little bit like your own? I mean, how might you answer it unless the Lord had been on my side? Unless the Lord had been on my side, maybe you'd say, I would have never overcame that cancer. Unless the Lord had been on my side, I would have never survived through that divorce. Unless the Lord had been on my side, I would have never made it when my spouse died. Unless the Lord had been on my side, I wouldn't have got through when my child was sick. You see, I think as a people of God, we know this story. Unless the Lord, unless the Lord, unless the Lord. This is our anthem, beloved. But today's story is working in the midst of a bigger, greater story happening in the book of Genesis. And that is this. That through one family, the world was cursed. But through another family, the entire world will be blessed. That's the big picture of the book of Genesis and really the entire Bible. Through one family, the entire world is cursed. But through another family, the entire world is going to be blessed. And this story, this, this idea of what's happening here of Abram going and rescuing Lot just keeps playing itself out throughout the Bible. I mean, consider David in 1 Samuel 30. His wives and his men's wives and their children are all captured. What do they do? They go by night and they go and they rescue 400 men and they bring them back. Or think about Gideon. Gideon, right? I mean, he goes up against um, uh, the Midianites, right? I was going to say, yeah, I was going to say the wrong group of people, but the Midianites. And the Midianites have 135,000 soldiers. And Gideon went against them with how many? Do you remember? 300. Similar to Abram's story, right? This story that's happening here gets echoed throughout the Bible. And guess what? They overcome. The Bible's point is that nothing and no one can stop God and His blessing. No one can. God will rescue His people and He will win the victory, beloved. And consider, though, now how this might have impacted those who are reading the story. Remember, who's the author of Genesis? Do you remember? Moses. And Moses writes to the people of Israel that have come out of Egyptian bondage and they're there in the wilderness and they're looking toward the promised land. And in the promised land, they've already heard there are giants there and there's fortified cities and we look like grasshoppers in their eyes. And maybe Moses is saying to them, you feel outnumbered, overwhelmed, as if there's no chance. That's always been the story of God's people. Quit focusing on yourself and get your eyes fixed on God. Doesn't that appear to be the story? Is that yours right now? The things that lie before you seem like mountains. But maybe we've got to step back and get our gaze off the earth, as Colossians 3 says, and fix your eyes, fix your heart desires, your thoughts on the things that are above the God of all creation. And maybe we might stand and say with the prophet Zechariah in Zechariah 4 and 6, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord God Almighty. Or as the psalmist who says, some trust in chariots and some trust in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. It's in that truth, right, that we follow the example here and lift our eyes beyond Abram, this hero in the story. We lift our eyes beyond David and his rescuing or Gideon and his rescuing. And we look to an even greater rescuer who faces an even greater captor, sin. And it's there that we see that God does exactly what this story of Abram pictures. He doesn't go and say, hey, you know what? Lot's in trouble. You guys go get him. I'm going to stay here and chill. No, God sends himself, his only son, who comes to rescue us. And what does he do? 
He does something even unique that's different than Abram in the story. Abram goes and rescues and brings them out. But what's Jesus do? He goes and gets captured in our place, doesn't he? He goes and gets captured in our place. And he takes the judgment and the wrath of God for our sins there on the cross. That we, the captive, might go free. And that we might one day enter that beautiful promised land that is the new heaven and the new earth. This story is saying to us, and guess what? How do we know that ultimately God was on Jesus' side? Well, as Paul tells us in the book of Romans, that he was raised on that third day to declare that God had accepted that payment for sin. It's the good news of the gospel. Today, do you hear that? Does it ring in your soul? I know sometimes the story is told that, Hey, it's kind of like the lifeguard went out, right? Or the Coast Guard went out and we were there in wreckage and we're floating and in the water about to drown and save ourselves. That's not the picture of the Bible, beloved. Todd's been preaching in Ephesians 2. The picture of the Bible is that you and I are dead on the bottom of the ocean. There is no SOS. We have no way to rescue ourselves. And Jesus comes and places his life in our place. He dies in our place. He's buried on the third day that he might raise us from death unto life. It's the story of a greater rescuer than Abram because we face a greater captor than the people of Babylon or Iraq or Turkey or whomever finds themselves coming toward us. In light of our hopeless situation and now being rescued, we need to ask, well, what should our response be? And that brings us to our third and last question. What should be our response to my rescuer? And the story shows us that we are to bless the Lord and enjoy our fellowship with him Pick up the wood, beginning in verse 17 of Genesis 14. After his return from the defeat of Chador Laomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheba. That is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hands. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. So following the battle here, we have two kings that show up, right? We have the king of Sodom, and then we have also the king of Salem, right? So we have two kings show up in two different paths in some way toward how do we respond to God and what he has done, the rescuer. Now we know, right, again, we're going to see more about the king of Sodom in a minute, but this interesting figure enters here, this Melchizedek, this king of Salem. I don't have time today. There's a lot to unpack with Melchizedek. There's a lot of interest and a lot of unknown about him. In fact, Hebrews chapter 5 through 7 in the New Testament talks about him. Passages like Psalm 110 and others, they look to this Melchizedek feature, figure. We know that he is also, right, his name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. We know that the word Salem, according to Psalm 76.2 and other passages, indicate that Salem speaks of Jerusalem. And so this is this king of Jerusalem before David and the others have conquered it. He comes out. And it's what's interesting is, is that he is the first priest mentioned in the entire Bible. Look at that. It calls him a priest. And notice that it says, though, he is priest of who? God Most High. This interesting figure, again, that Hebrews 5 and 7 begins to unfold more, more for us. Notice what he does. He brings the blessing to God's people. Look what he says. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high who delivered your enemies into your hand. So yes, he starts out and, and he does. He blesses Abram. 
But he says the blessing that comes to Abram is because God most high has done it. And God's the possessor of heaven and earth. He says, you don't want to know why, Abram, you won this battle? He says, why? He says, because God has delivered your enemies into your hand. Isn't that good news today for whatever you're facing? It seems like too much and insurmountable. You cannot overcome, but God can. The power of Christ can do what you and I cannot do. Notice that he calls him, he calls him this possessor of heaven and earth. It's another way of saying that God is sovereign, that he has the power, the right, the wisdom to rule over all things and all creatures, and he does. There's none like him. Again, Abram doesn't win the battle because of his own strength, but because the Lord was on his side. And why is that? Well, because guess what? God has promised to bless Abram and his descendants and give them the land. But he also promised that anyone who opposed Abram, he would do what to them? He would curse them, right? There was a blessing and a curse. And guess what? When they captured Lot, these kings who had had no problem conquering everything else, but the moment they step in there and they come against God's covenant promise, man, that's when the line is drawn. And that moment, God comes to the defense of his people and he raises up Abram who goes and rescues captured Lot. And so Melchizedek, this kingly priest who, right, we know ultimately represents a greater kingly priest who is coming. His name is Jesus, who brings to us this good news. But did you notice in the midst of this, what does he pull out right here? Notice back verse 18. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out what? Bread and wine. Now, our hearts and minds immediately go to the Lord's Supper, right? And in some ways, rightfully so, as we're going to pause this morning and celebrate the Lord's Supper, as we celebrate his victory and his redemption of our souls, of bringing us out of captivity. But before we go there, as Pastor Sam Amadi makes point of, there's some other things we ought to consider. Consider when bread and wine are also mentioned already in the book of Genesis. Number one was in Genesis 3 and 19. When Adam and Eve were cursed, the Lord said to Adam, listen, by the sweat of your brow, you are going to work the ground all the days of your life and eat your what? Bread. And then in Genesis chapter 9, when Noah gets off the ark, right, he has this vineyard and ultimately takes and he drinks of it. And he gets drunk and then all this unfolds in his family and there's curses and all that. What's the point? Here in this moment, the other the things, bread and wine that have served as curses ultimately become blessings. God is able to take the curses in our life, the things that are intended for evil for us, and use them for good. Amen? He takes the very curses and they become blessings to us. Think about it in the ultimate way. Right? You and I were supposed to drink from the cursed cup for all those who rebel against God and are sinners, as we all are. We are to take and drink of the cup of God's wrath, His judgment in all eternity in hell. But the Son of God comes. And he takes that cup out of our hands and he goes to the cross and he drinks it full. And in that place, he hands us another cup, a cup of grace and mercy and eternal life and says, take and drink freely. It's this moment of the curse becoming the blessing as Galatians makes clear to us about the fact that he's cursed there on the cross. So we might ask, well, what's Abram's response to all of this blessing? Look what it says in verse 20. And blessed be God most high who has delivered you and your enemies into your hands. And notice what Abram does. Abram gave him what? A tenth of everything. It's what we know as a tithe, right? And it was a customary response to kings and priests at that day and time. And so Abram is honoring him as this kingly priest that's come. And he gives an example not only right for the Israelites, but in some way for us. 
Now, we live in a different place and time. We're no longer under the law. But again, this takes place before the law. And so I think there's so much that's instructive for us as we consider our financial giving to the Lord. So it might be a reminder to you that 10% is a great benchmark, a place to start. But I want to encourage you, listen, don't let that stop. Many of you, God's blessed in great ways. 10% is just a place to get started and launch from and give more. Others of you, you may hear that and realize that you're in a season, man, where you're just struggling to keep the rent, on, the rent, to pay the bills. There may be a season in which, guess what? You're just, man, you're giving, right? A reminder is the Lord loves a cheerful giver. The Bible says no one should give reluctantly or under compulsion because God loves a cheerful giver. God is more concerned about our heart than the percentage. But again, beloved, Abram gives us a great example. This is the response to being set free. This is a response of thankfulness ultimately to God as we give. So one king honors Abram and shows us the way to bestowing all honor and blessing and praise ultimately unto the Lord. But then another king shows up. And he shows us another way that we might respond to God's blessing. Pick up the wood, verse 21. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eschol, and Mamre take their share. Did you hear the first words of the king of Sodom? Did you hear what they were? What did he say? Give me. Give me. Is that your heart today? Give me. That self-centered heart, the moment it comes, right, to a relationship with your parents, it's just about give me. When it comes to your marriage, the look to your spouse is always give me. When it comes to the church, you look around and think, give me. When you go to the community or somewhere else or wherever you're doing, it's always give me. Beloved, that's the self-centered, selfish heart. It's in some way saying to us, I want the blessing, but I don't want the blesser. Is that your heart today? Is that my heart today? We must hear this and be warned. That's the king of Sodom. And listen, Abram says, guys, I, 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 you know what? Not only am I not going to take your Jordans, I don't even want the shoelaces from your Jordans. Because I don't want you to be able to say, you made Abram rich. I'm not going to take anything from you. I think there's two clear warnings from us for us here. Number one, don't eat the devil's bread. I don't know what situation in life you're in, but you may be thinking, man, this is my opportunity. This is my way to get up the ladder as quick as I can. doesn't matter how I go about it or what I may have to compromise on biblically. I'm just going to make my way any way I can. Abram shows us that's not the way, beloved, to follow the things of the world and look to the ways of the world to make us rich or to prosper us. But to humbly accept where the Lord has us and trust that in his time, he will raise us up and put us where he wants us to be. I think, secondly, there ought to be a warning that when we despise God's work and God's workers, the judgment's coming. I mean, this very chapter, the king of Sodom experienced judgment from other men, right? They came and they captured them and took over. But we know that, guess what, even here the king of Sodom doesn't see the mercy and grace of God extended to him. In some ways, he just keeps stepping and rejecting that. And so in a couple chapters, we're going to see the ultimate judgment of God come. As fire from heaven will rain down on Sodom and Gomorrah. I think it's a reminder to us, beloved, when we reject the offer of God's mercy and grace extended to us in Christ, it is a testimony to our spiritual blindness 
And there is nothing left but the judgment of God for us. Be warned, beloved, from this text. To the unbeliever this morning, I hope and pray that you see Lot's desperate situation as hopelessness. And maybe, yeah, there's some truth, man. Lot got himself into it. He should have maybe heard about the warnings. He should have fleed when maybe he saw that these men were great sinners. There was much wickedness around them. And guess what it says? He not only ventured that way, he's even found himself living in that city. But in the midst of that, isn't it amazing the mercy and grace of God that he still sends Abram to rescue him? You see, in other words, some of you, you think you're so far gone, there's no way God could rescue you. You're too captive to sin this morning. That addiction or whatever that sin is that's ruling your heart and life, you think you've done too much. God would never accept you. This story says unto us, there is a God who sees us in the midst of our sin, and He so loved the world that He sent His only begotten Son. Amen? That to this morning, that if you would believe in Him, listen to this, this morning, if you would believe in Him, you should not perish, but have everlasting life. What an offer to captives like you and me. How could we refuse? How could we refuse this? To the church this morning, we're going in just a moment. We're going to have a, a time of confession as we prepare our hearts just after this sermon. We're going to just pause and, and spend a little few moments in confession of sin. And then we're going to sing a song. And then we're going to go and bring our, our kiddos and our nursery workers in here because we want to celebrate as a family. This is a family event when we come to the Lord's table. But I think this also ought to be a text where you just pause for a moment and just give thanks that God has rescued you. But again, as we think about it as a family, this text can't just be like, oh, this is good news for me. No, beloved, this is good news for others. So I want to encourage you this morning. Would you just scan the room and see that senior adult sitting near you somewhere and say, God, thank you for saving them. Maybe you scan the room and you see a college student and you see them and God, by his grace and mercy, has rescued them. Would you just pause along with giving thanks for yourself and others? You would just give thanks to God for them. Would this be just a moment of just saying, God, thank you that you've rescued so many captives in this room, my precious brothers and sisters. You see, that's what happens at this table. It's the many of us becoming one, the reminder of what Christ has done for us. So again, this morning, let it be a time of giving thanks, but let us pause also now in a time of confession as we prepare our hearts for the Lord's table. Would you bow with me? Father, we come confessing our sin unto you, Lord. For who else shall we share it with than the one who is able to do something about it? And Lord, your word says that even though we sinned against others, you said that all sin is ultimately against you. So though we may have offended our parents, or our brother, or sister, or a friend, or our spouse, or even the government, or wherever, in whatever ways we have done, Lord, we realize that ultimately, all sin is against you because we are your image bearers and we have failed to image you. So, Father, we just bow right now as we prepare to come to this table. Just make an acknowledgement, Lord, that we are not worthy to come in our own goodness and righteousness. Lord, we treasure the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf. And so, Lord, I pray right now that we would just search you by the power of your Holy Spirit, would search our hearts and reveal right now 
We're just going to pause, Lord, in your presence. And whatever sin is there in our lives, I pray your Holy Spirit would reveal it. Maybe you've already revealed it. And I pray that, Lord, we would repent. We would say, God, forgive us and change us. We know when we're sorry, but, Lord, we want to be changed. We no longer want to live this way. So, Lord, for this moment, would you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, through the truth of your word today, search our hearts and minds, reveal the sin to us, and give us a desire to repent and turn from that and worship only you. we thank you that your word says if we confess our sins that you are faithful and just to forgive us and purify us from all unrighteousness lord i want nothing more now than just to run to this table and partake of this bread and this juice and that is my cleansing that is my righteousness that is my holiness that is my only testimony before you nothing in my hands i bring simply to thy cross i cling Oh, God, that is our anthem as your people this morning. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you that unless the Lord had been on our side, Lord, we would not be here. All praise be unto you. And the church said, Amen. This morning we invite you to respond, spend more time in confession, giving God thanks for you and other believers around you. I don't know how the Lord will move your heart, but again, after this, we're going to let parents go that need to go get kiddos in the nursery and bring them back. So would you stand with us this morning and sing?